This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew's Gospel, and in it you're going to hear a group of people who ask Jesus a question, and it's a trick question. And one of the nice things about Jesus is, is whenever anyone asks him a question, even a trick question, he never gives them a straight answer. He always gives them kind of a, tr- a tricky answer back, right? He always gives you something to think about when, when he answers a question. So they're going to they're gonna ask him, well, listen to the story. This is from Matthew's Gospel. The Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with those who were loyal to Herod. Teacher, they said to Jesus, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're a man of your word. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others. They're flattering him here. They're really trying to build him up. You're not swayed by others. You pay no attention to who they are. So tell us, Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a good question. They, they want to know who Jesus is loyal to. Is he loyal to the emperor or not? Jesus knowing that they had some shady intention, said, you all are hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin that you use for paying taxes. So they brought Jesus a coin, and he asked them, whose image is on the coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's image. And Jesus said, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give back to God what is God's. But when they heard him say this, they were all amazed, and they left him, and they went away. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today I want to talk about something boring, something about which none of you have a strong opinion. We'll talk about religion and politics today. Ooh. You all have not been afraid to talk about a little politics here in this sacred space over the years. I would venture to say that some of you even attend this church because we practice a politically engaged kind of Christian faith. I also know that there are some people sitting among us today who wished we talked about politics a little less. Many people out there find North Decatur to be too political. Some would prefer that politics be kept out of the pulpit altogether. And that's where I want to begin this conversation today, with this, with this idea that politics and religion actually don't belong together at all, that politics sullies the faith. The separation of politics from religion was, if not born, then surely perfected here in the American South. The legacy lives on even today. 
For several years, I've gone out to meet with pastors and lay people to try to recruit people for Presbyterians for a better Georgia. It's the public policy advocacy group that we belong to as a congregation and that I co-chair. And I I try to tell pastors and and lay leaders to to jump on board and help us go down to the state house and advocate for homes for people who don't have them and medical care for people who don't have access to it. I think these are non-controversial items, but, but silly me, right? Uh, I, I, I get all these answers back, these very sort of genuine smiles. Thank you. No, we're not interested, right? Not right now is what I hear. And, and I used to think it was something wrong with me, right? I thought I wasn't selling it well enough. But then I realized there's something deep in our culture and our history here in the South that warns us against the mixing of faith and politics. The story begins with this man, the Reverend James Henley Thornwell. Thornwell was a Presbyterian minister, a gentleman theologian, he was called. In the years prior to the Civil War, Thornwell rose from abject poverty to become one of the most learned men in the entire South. For a time, Thornwell served as the president of what would become the University of South Carolina, and he became a professor of systematic theology at Columbia Theological Seminary. Thornwell was deeply respected, even beloved by his students. When the southern states seceded in 1861. They renounced the authority of the government, and they created a new nation, the Confederate States of America, and Christian denominations soon followed. In December of that same year, 1861, the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America met at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. The Reverend Joseph Wilson, who was the father of future President Woodrow Wilson, was the host pastor of that gathering. And there was an open letter that was shared among all of the delegates of the gathering, written by James Henley Thornwell. And the letter explained the theological reasons for the creation of this new Southern church. The letter begins by accusing Northern Presbyterians of wading into dangerous waters of taking religion too far into the political sphere. Thornwell says this. He says, We, meaning the southern churches, have never confounded Caesar and Christ, and we have never mixed the issues of this world with the weighty matters that properly belong to us as citizens of the kingdom of God. You can hear from the beginning of the letter what he's up to. Thornwell is framing these two uh, issues, these two areas, as separate spheres, politics and religion. The, The church, he says, must leave to Caesar what is Caesar's and leave to God what is God's. Now, y'all know that Thornwell wasn't laying out this principle in abstraction. He was talking about what? Slavery. 
He was talking about the Northern Church's position on slavery, an issue that not only, of course, concerned politics, human rights, and human liberties, but economics and wealth, and also culture, manners, and customs. Northern Church leaders had had become increasingly vocal in giving theological justification to the position of abolitionism. Thornwell responded, that the Southern Church could, could only continue to be the true church, the body of Christ, if it were agnostic on slavery. I want you to listen to what he wrote to his fellow Southern clergy. Thornwell said, The Presbyterian Church has been enabled by divine grace to pursue an eminently conservative and a thoroughly scriptural policy in relation to this delicate question. In our ecclesiastical capacity, he said, we are neither the friends nor the foes of slavery. That is to say, we have no commission to either propagate or abolish it. The policy of its existence or non-existence is a question which exclusively belongs to the state. We have no right as a church to enjoin it as a duty or to condemn it as a sin. The social, civil, political problems connected with this great subject transcend our sphere as God has not entrusted to God's church the organization of society, the construction of government, nor the allotment of individuals to their various stations. Thornwell says, this position is impregnable unless it can be shown that slavery is a sin. Of course, for Thornwell, slavery was not a sin. The Bible, he said, never calls it a sin. It's practiced, he said, in cultures all across the world, so it must be normal. Besides, Thornwell says, the African race is so clearly inferior in its moral and intellectual development, so far below the white race on the great chain of being, that benevolent bondage must be considered a feature of God's providence. It's actually a disgusting document to read, as we do with the benefit of hindsight. All of us can see what Thornwell could not, which is that he was blinded by his own cultural context. He couldn't see anything wrong with slavery. He didn't want to, and so he didn't. He proposed an entire theological justification for the church to stay out of politics to legitimate a moral atrocity. Reading this now should bring us all to a place of pause. For don't we long, just as Thornwell did, to feel right and righteous about our politics? This self-righteousness can cause us to misread the holy book. It can cause us to say outlandish things about God and about the church. It is most certainly true that we endanger the Christian faith when we conscript God too easily for our own political agenda. We are wise when we remember Abraham Lincoln, who around the same time that Thornwell was writing was purportedly asked if he thought God was on his side. And he said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on my side, 
My concern is to be on God's side. But here in the American South, Thornwell's brilliance, and he was brilliant, carried the day. From Thornwell's letter came a theological position called the Doctrine of the Spirituality of the Churches. This doctrine enshrined as formal church teaching the separation of church and politics. Seminarians learned it, and pastors preached it from Richmond to Raleigh, from Lexington to Little Rock, from Nashville to New Orleans to Atlanta and here in Decatur. The church and state must be separate like planets moving in different orbits. The church would focus on proclaiming the gospel, on calling people into worship, on teaching people privatized spirituality. Politics had no place in our pulpits. Ministers had no authority to speak on political matters. Congregants had every reason to expect their churches would be insulated from the troubled world outside the church. And that here in settings like this one, they would receive instruction about spiritual things and never be afraid of being wounded on account of their political opinions. It was a hundred years after Thornwell wrote his letter that another pastor wrote a letter discussing the relationship between the church and politics. This letter happened to be written from a jail in Birmingham, and it's addressed to local Birmingham clergy, to the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the rabbis, local clergy who had used their leadership and their influence to discourage nonviolent protests for civil rights. And if you read Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, and I I do encourage you to pick it up again this week and read it, read it this time as a full and final theological rebuke to James Henley Thornwell, to the illusion that there are separate spheres and to the doctrine of the spirituality of the churches. In the letter, after King has made a case that The full freedom of black Americans is God's will and is, in fact, the only justifiable end for people of good faith. King finally addresses white churches directly. He says this. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. King goes on, I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. 
In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. Finally, King says, I have traveled the length and breadth of all the southern states. I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward over and over. I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? And who is their God? Of course, there is danger in blithely dragging God into partisan politics. But the greater danger, King asserted, was that the church would lose its prophetic character, that it would become a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound, an arch defender of the status quo. The church cannot be that. For until God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, we who are followers of Jesus are called to bring all of the gifts of our tradition to bear upon our common life together. No matter who we are and no matter what we have done in our lives, in Christ each of us has been forgiven. We have been forgiven our own efforts at self-justification. We are loved by God with a perfect love that sets us free and our freedom is given to us so that we might use it to love each other, to love even our enemies and to love without fear of the cost, to love in word and also in deed. In Christ, our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, in the commonwealth of universal sister and brotherhood. Our citizenship is in a community of sharing and sacrifice and mutual support in which the least of us is given the greatest honor. And if we also choose to count ourselves as citizens of the United States, then all of our citizenship, our work and our our prayer and our organizing and our voting are all done in service of helping God's kingdom to come to every one of our neighborhoods. Certainly, stopping bad laws and making good laws helps. Providing health care and housing to those who have none helps. But God's kingdom does not come through party platforms. Bernie Sanders will not bring in the eschaton if he's elected in 2020. You know this, right? We are never to align ourselves too closely with the platform of one political party or another. For in addition to working in the field of politics, we are called to even more to works of mercy and compassion and charity and reconciliation. In the end, perhaps the greatest gift and insight of the Christian faith for politics is that we know 
that every single human being is made in the image of God. Every, every single person on this earth is a beloved child of God, one who possesses infinite dignity that can never be violated. That's what Jesus believed. And when he acted on that belief, in private and in public, it caused a stir. Jesus was healing the sick. He was bringing excluded people back into the life of the community. He was touching those who had been deemed unclean, and he was forgiving people their sins. He was restoring dignity and hope to people who had been judged worthless by the state. And all of that was making the government and the authorities nervous enough to want to kill him. And so they tried to trick him. They said to him, Jesus, do you pay taxes? That's a straightforward question. Jesus, do you, do you honor the authority of the emperor? Just answer yes or no. So Jesus asked them for a coin. Right? Interesting that he doesn't already have one. He asked them for a coin, and he holds it up in one hand, and he looks at it, and he He says, whose image is on that coin? And of course, they say, it's Caesar's image. And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And in my mind, I imagine Jesus with his other hand starting to point and gesture to the things around him, to the the buildings and the homes and and to the animals, and to the trees, and to the fields, and maybe gesturing to the sky, to the heavens above, the great expanse of the heavens, the blue sky opening above, and and Jesus pointing to each of the faces around him, each one bearing the image of the Creator. He says, give. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. There are no separate spheres. There is one creation. Everything and everyone is God's. God's. 